in a way of just a bit of recap regarding kind of our travels through this incredible gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is writing with a very specific intention, and that is to present Jesus as the king. Yes, the king of the Jews, but just more broadly, the promised king, the savior of the world, the king that would establish a kingdom where he would rule and reign in righteousness. Matthew, also known in scripture as Levi, more than likely was a Levite. So he grew up with a a religious backing. It's why Levi, Matthew, and his gospel quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers. We'll actually see an example of that uh, this morning. But he's writing to a largely Jewish audience with the intention of presenting Jesus as the king, which is why Uh, The whole book begins with, well, a genealogy. Uh, To be a king, one would have to show lineage. Uh, To be the king of Israel, one would have to show lineage back to King David. Matthew begins by establishing kind of the legal justification for Jesus' kingship. Jesus can be king because he has this genealogical link, an important one. Within his writings, Matthew continues in the first four chapters to really introduce us to a lot, of, a lot of things. He, following the genealogy, presents for us the birth of Jesus, the miraculous birth of Christ. We're introduced to John the Baptist, the forerunner, the promised forerunner. John's ministry segues into this incredible moment where Jesus comes and is baptized and, and a voice declares from heaven, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. The first four chapters kind of establishes for us, again, some, some background, introduces us to some of the characters. And then we're kind of given a bit of a summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry, that Jesus really had two components, that he would teach the people the kingdom of God, that he would go into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he would teach the people, and then he would also minister practically to the needs of the people. And no doubt, this would manifest itself into into miracles, signs and wonders, incredible feats performed by Jesus, all this being done to again validate the things that he was saying, to demonstrate that his word had power behind it. So the first four chapters, largely introductory, And then as an example of Jesus' teaching ministry, chapters 5, 6, and 7 record for us one of the greatest dissertations given of all time, not just by Jesus, but by anyone. This very famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount because of its locale, Jesus teaching from a mountain. The multitudes gathered, Jesus teaching of the kingdom. Interesting, while we can conclude that this was very much a literal sermon, a sermon given in a specific time, a specific place, to a very specific audience. It's likely that Matthew, in recording for us the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't exactly record everything that Jesus would have said as just an exercise in our lead into the Sermon on the Mount, this great dissertation. If you just read through it, it takes you roughly 13 to 15 minutes Understandably, Jesus probably taught for much longer than that. Matthew presents for us the Sermon on the Mount, records for it the way that he does, likely because it was the blueprint of various themes that Jesus taught throughout his ministry. 
that Jesus would take various components of this sermon and in the various synagogues that he would frequent, he would expound that, that in, in some ways these were a compilation of sermonettes. That Jesus would have taught much more expansively on these very important topics. But kind of giving us a summary here in these three important chapters. Now, coming off of the Sermon on the Mount, again, presenting Jesus as the king, it's not a surprise that Matthew pivots to, to illustrating that Jesus was more than just a preacher. He was more than just a good talker. That Jesus was a doer. That Jesus didn't just tell people about the kingdom. He demonstrated the power of the kingdom. He didn't just talk about loving your neighbor, but he practically loved his neighbor. That he didn't just have a compassion, but his compassion moved him to action. Jesus was a man of action. He was a man that saw needs, and he saw hurt, and he did something about it, which I love about Jesus. I love that about Jesus, that Jesus doesn't just see needs, but he acts. He goes out of his way to meet needs exactly the way that he knows how. And so, again, presenting Jesus as the king, a, a man of action, we get to chapter 8, and we're given several examples of his power manifesting practically. Last Sunday, we looked at the leper, the leper coming to Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me cleanse. Interesting, the leper didn't just ask for healing, which would have been a different word. He asked for cleansing. He uses what would be very much a religious term. He didn't want just healing, no doubt part of his motivation. He wanted cleansing. He wanted this wicked disease to be removed from his body, but he wanted the effects of that disease to be reversed as well. He wanted complete restoration. And he comes to Jesus, the leper, with belief. He doesn't doubt if Jesus was able. If you are able, you can make me cleanse. No, he wanted to know if Jesus would be willing, would be willing to touch him, a man that was an outcast, a dead man walking, a man condemned and ostracized, from the rest of society, and Jesus gloriously says to him, I am willing. I am willing. Jesus saw the man's heart. He saw what the man had been through. And he reaches out and he touches the man. And he declares, be cleansed. And as with everything in the universe, to a directive given by Jesus, the leprosy obeyed. And it left him, and he was cleansed, and he was instructed to go and present himself to the priest as a testimony. Again, unique, because no leper had been healed in Israel. Jesus had not performed such a miracle, at least by this point in his ministry. And yet the man comes in incredible faith. And so Matthew presenting the power of this king, healing the leper, but we also find a couple more examples of Jesus healing very unique individuals. Again, in Jewish culture, a leper, it didn't get lower than that regarding society, the rungs of society. Complete outcast, alienated. But then we'll also see in this chapter that Jesus performs an incredible work in the life of a Gentile, a centurion. And then not only does Jesus perform a work in that man's life, but then we see Jesus turning around and performing a miracle in the life of a woman. you got to understand 
when you place it in the context of Jewish society, especially at the time, Matthew presenting this king, presenting the king demonstrating power, providing three examples, the leper, a Gentile, and a woman, Matthew is making a profound point regarding the heart of Jesus. This is a different type of king. Well, let's dive into our text. We're going to read the first several verses. Verse 5 of Matthew 8. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under, under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, and when Jesus heard it, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And then Matthew adds, and his servant was healed. That same hour. The scene is the scene opens with Jesus entering Capernaum. Earlier in our study through Matthew, we discussed this important city, Capernaum, in some detail. In way of just reminder, Capernaum was one of what was roughly 17 or so fishing villages that surrounded the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Tiberias. Uh, it being its more Roman uh, classification. The Sea of Galilee is not a very big place. In fact, if you go to Israel, it's one of those locations that kind of catches you a bit off guard. I remember when I went several years ago, you stand there at the shore in Capernaum, the ruins of which have been uncovered. You stand there, and, and you, can, you can turn to the right and see the shoreline, to the left, see the shoreline, look straight ahead and see the shoreline. It's, it's, a, it's a lake that's roughly... Seven miles by 14 miles. It's not a very large body of water. And with 17 different fishing villages surrounding the shore, you can understand how, just within the flow of the narrative itself, how Jesus would be able to, to town hop, you know, to go from town to town to town. Uh, very cramped. It's estimated. And again, we have to take some of the history uh, with a grain of salt. But again, it's believed that roughly between two and three million people were living in what's this known, the, the greater Galilee, this particular region. The Sea of Galilee providing everyone a, a great source of food uh, because of uh, the Jordan River flowing uh, south out of the Sea of Galilee. You had fertile farmland, big agricultural region. Um, Capernaum of these 17 towns was the largest and the most notable. Um, as such, it makes sense that Jesus would establish his headquarters in Capernaum. It's the town that he would spend uh, the most time in. Uh, we know, and we'll see this in just a few minutes, that Peter 
had a home located there in Capernaum, likely the place that Jesus would stay uh, when he would be in town. Uh, Capernaum, located uh, really uh, kind of on the western shore uh, along an important trade route that would connect the area uh, through the wilderness to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, as a result, um, it was heavily trafficked, important, um, significant for commerce. Uh, as such, Rome uh, placed a lot of resources into uh, Capernaum. Uh, we know that there was uh, a tax office um, located there in Capernaum that probably serviced the entire region. Our author, Matthew, a.k.a. Levi, uh, was one of the taxmen uh, working there in Capernaum. Uh, we'll read his story uh, in the next few weeks. Because there was a tax office in Capernaum, uh, it's not a surprise that a centurion uh, would be stationed there. Uh, regarding just the way that um, the Roman military worked, you had uh, a legion. Legion was 6,000 soldiers. And of the 6,000, uh, it would be further broken down into groupings of 100. A centurion uh, was placed over 100 men. Um, unlike the legionnaire, uh, who would uh, be more strategic in his role, a centurion was very much a, a man among men. Um, according to what we know of, of, of Roman military law, a centurion would sign on for 25 years. Um, he would become a beloved figure in the eyes of his men. Uh, he wouldn't stand back sending men into, uh, into battle. He would lead his men into battle. A centurion... Uh, would, would be bloody. He would be battle-tested. He would be hardened. Again, not just sending men into harm, but leading men into the front lines. Centurion. It's interesting to note that the Bible uh, mentions centurions. There are seven centurions mentioned within the New Testament. Um, should be pointed out that of the seven, all of them are presented to us in a favorable light. Centurions were very noble people. They were good men. They were strong. They had integrity and character. This particular centurion is a little unique um, because we know, according to some of the other writings about this particular story, that he had an interesting connection with Judaism. As a Gentile, as a Roman, the man would have grown up in, in the pantheon of gods. He would have grown up in a very polytheistic culture. And yet for some reason, again, we're not told, this man identified, connected in some way with the God of Israel to the point that he used his influence uh, to spearhead the, the formation, the actual construction of a great synagogue located there in Capernaum. Now, he himself was not allowed to attend or to be there. And yet being moved to action, connecting with the God of Israel, this centurion put some resources behind it. Uh, understandably, this would have developed some goodwill amongst the population he was there to kind of rule over. But the man has a connection to God. And, according to our text, for some reason, somehow, in some way, this centurion had been exposed to Jesus. As you read through the text, obviously, there is some backstory that we're unaware of. This centurion, again, a military man, given jurisdiction over the area, headquartered in Capernaum, 
would have had some familiarity by this point with Jesus himself. Again, a great gathering, a great multitude of people would have given some rise of concern from the authorities, some interest. Could it have been, and again, pure speculation, that the centurion with some armed personnel had been just off to the side as Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount? Again, a great mob would have garnered some attention. There was always revolts and revolutions happening in the area. The Jews were a wily group of people that were hard to govern. This king, the buzz, people talking about Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter that is now a rabbi. Clearly, this centurion has had some exposure, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount and the message that Jesus gave, or potentially just witnessing some of the miracles that had already been performed by Jesus in the area. This centurion comes to Jesus. He has a need. And before we actually get to the exchange that occurs, Jesus is, is surprised. You know, Jesus tells the man that he would come to his home, would heal his servant. And, and in response, we, we see this incredible reaction that the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Again, in regards to the Gentiles, there was a stigma regarding the Gentiles and the Jews. Uh, accordingly, Jews were not allowed to enter the home of, of Gentiles. It was an off-limits. And this man recognizing authority, he has an incredible faith. We also see that he has a heart. He has compassion. Within Roman society, while the vast majority of the population was enslaved, the way that the, the Romans treated the slave population was largely barbaric. There was very little regard for the, the life of slaves from the perspective of the Romans. In fact, certain historians record that slaves were, were human tools. They were viewed as such. They were used. And when their use was no longer uh, necessary or they were no longer able to fulfill their particular use, they were discarded, and that's probably saying it nicely. And yet this centurion, he's got a servant. There's a slave in his home. We know nothing of the servant. Another account says that the centurion loved this slave greatly, that he looked beyond just the usefulness, but there was a, a relational connection, so much so that, that the man ends up the servant, ends up sick. In fact, we're given the description that he's at home paralyzed. The King James Version calls it palsy. We don't know exactly what he's afflicted with, but he's, he's immobilized. He's stricken. And as a result of the disease that has, that has caused the, the ailment, the man says that he is dreadfully tormented. So not only is he paralyzed, he's immobile, he's incapacitated. But whatever the sickness is, whatever the illness might have been, it's causing a tormation. The man is hurting. He's sick. He's in pain. And the Saturian, again, loving this servant, 
He's desperate. And so he leaves the home. He doesn't know what to do. But he knows of Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus. He says, Lord, my servant is at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Twice in the text, both in response, addressing Jesus, he uses this word, Lord. Same word used by the leper. Lord, if you are willing. The man here is acknowledging there's an authority that Jesus has. A hierarchy. As a centurion, the man knows about the chain of command. His authority derives directly from Caesar. As a result, if he gives commands to those under him, they have to obey. They have to obey, not because he's somehow special, different, or unique, but because he exists under a particular authority, that there is a chain of command. He's one cog in the chain, and yet it's how it works. And so the man recognizes that Jesus is different, that Jesus has an authority. He calls him Lord. Now, what I love about this story, and what I think we can really draw uh, in way of application, is, is notice the request that the centurion makes. Do you see the request? The, the, the answer is no. <laughs> you don't see the request. He makes no request of Jesus, does he? Does he ask Jesus to come to the home? No, he doesn't ask him. Does he ask Jesus to heal the servant? No, not, it's not in the text. He doesn't, he doesn't ask anything of Jesus. All he does is he comes to Jesus and he lets Jesus know what's going on. He doesn't presume anything. He doesn't ask anything. Which is a little different than the leper, isn't it? The leper comes. Yes, if you are willing, you can make me cleanse. He's pleading. This centurion is so fascinating. What struck me about this, have you ever been in a similar situation? Have you ever been in a situation, something arises, comes out of left field, you're not prepared for it, you're not aware it was coming, it just strikes. Now, for, for the centurion, it was a sickness of a servant, but for, for all of us, it, these type of things can come in all different shapes and sizes, all different types of variety. H has something ever come across your path? And you don't know what to do. You, you, you feel helpless, a bit lost. In fact, could it be that, that you don't actually know what to ask of Jesus? Have you ever had such an experience? You don't know what to ask Jesus to do. You don't know what can be done. You feel helpless. You know, what's interesting is that the centurion felt this way, and he comes to Jesus, and he doesn't know what to ask. He doesn't know what to petition. And yet he comes to Jesus anyway, doesn't he? That's a smart man. 
And what does he do? Lord, I don't know what to ask. I don't know what should be done. I don't know what can be done. But I'm coming to you because I know you have power and you have authority. You are the Lord. And so this is what's going on. I have this servant, and I love this servant, and he's at the house, and he's sick. He's paralyzed, and he's tormented. He's writhing in pain and discomfort. There's nothing I can do. I feel so desperate, so helpless. Everything that we've tried has failed. Every physician we've called hasn't come up with any remedy whatsoever. And so I'm just here, I'm just letting you know, this servant is at my house, and he's sick, and he's tormented. The man doesn't know what to ask. But he brings his need to Jesus anyway. And what I love is that Jesus knows exactly what to do. Which should be an encouragement to you, I should say. That if there's something going on in your life, and we're told in Scripture to cast our cares on him, for he cares for us. You know, Jesus doesn't need your advice on what to do. I know that might strike you a little odd because, well, you're you, and you know everything, right? You know, so often we come to God with our need, and we're very willing to present a list of potential remedies that would be acceptable to us. Jesus, here's my problem, and here's the solution. Now, act. The hubris, right? The centurion comes and he presents his need. And Jesus knows what to do. Again, within its context, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, <clears throat> For everyone that's standing around Jesus at this point, Jaws would have hit the floor. Shock would have taken over the crowd. Jesus has just told a centurion, a Gentile, that he would come to the home and enter it. The audacity. Jesus. The scandal. And yet Jesus, I think that's the reaction that he wanted. You know, there would be another centurion that also wouldn't know exactly what to ask. And what would happen? Jesus would speak to a servant named Peter and say, go. Enter his home and tell him about me. And Peter would go and enter the home of a centurion. Acts chapter 10, the gospel would jump from the Jews to the Gentiles. I think Jesus was ready. He was excited. This is going to blow people's minds. I'm a different kind of rabbi. I'm a different kind of king. I will come and heal him. And again, you see just the incredible faith of the centurion. Jesus, you don't need to come. And it's incredible faith because he says his justification, first he says, I am not worthy, which, which could very well be the centurion saying, listen, 
I know how this works. <laughs> I know the dynamic. I know this is going to probably cause you some, uh, some controversy on the front pages of the Jerusalem Gazette. It's going to be rabbi in her centurion's home. Facebook's going to blow up. It's going to be, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. You don't have to do that, Jesus. I appreciate it. But I know you don't have to. Again, the faith. And he says, all you have to do, speak a word. I know my, my servant will be healed. All you have to do is say the word, Jesus. Say the word. Again, the man understands the power of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't performing sleight of hand tricks. That Jesus wasn't performing illusions or, or magic. That Jesus was the real deal. You don't even have to be there. You say the word. I know my servant will be healed. And of course, Jesus... He says the word, right? And the servant was healed that very hour. Now, before we move on, there's a few more things that we do have to address about kind of the more expansive statement Jesus does in, in verse 10. To begin with, please note, we're told here, and when Jesus heard it, so just the faith of the centurion, we're told that he marveled. Now, this is a very unique word, this word marvel, that he marveled. In fact, this word is so unique that there are only two instances in the entire gospel record that this word marveled arises pertaining to Jesus. Two examples of it. This happens to be the first. The faith of the centurion. The faith of a Gentile. Jesus marvels. He's amazed at, flabbergasted. The other example is an interesting story where Jesus returns home to Nazareth. And he's rejected. He's rejected by those that should have accepted him. And we're told he marveled at their unbelief. There are two things that causes Jesus to marvel. Faith and unbelief. Interesting that he marveled not of the faith of a Jew. Who should have known? He marvels at their unbelief. But it was the centurion, a Gentile. I, I, again, to be a fly on the wall, what did Jesus' face look like when he marveled? I would imagine that it was very different in the presence of the centurion than it was there in Nazareth. And then he says, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now that, again, is a radical statement. Jesus is, is referring to heaven here. And he's referring to heaven in the context of what? The faith of the Gentile. Again, the Jews didn't believe that Gentiles were fit for heaven. They saw Gentiles as, as kindling to stoke the flames of hell for bad Jews. There was a lot of bigotry and hatred and condemnation. And yet Jesus here, not only is he working in the life of, of, of a Gentile, a Roman no less, a centurion, the oppressor. He's blown away by the man's faith, but he says, this man will be in heaven. And not only will he be in heaven, but he'll be sitting there breaking bread with the likes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The great patriarchs. I love this line 
and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That word sit down, it, it literally means in the original language to recline. And it's referring to the great supper of the lamb, to sit down in that culture when you ate you reclined back onto pillows. You didn't have chairs like we do. So he's referring to this great, great banquet, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Gentile would be in heaven. But then Jesus has also a bit of condemnation. He says, but, so in contrast, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not only is Jesus sending a shockwave through the audience by the acknowledgement that Gentiles would be in heaven, but he's sending a shockwave in the acknowledgement that some of the sons of the kingdom, and then there's a little bit of debate in regards to what specifically Jesus is referring to and using this particular phrase. I think, I think the, the best way of reading it, interpreting it, is that he's referring to Jewish people. And, and he's saying, he's saying, Gentiles, contrary to public opinion, will be in heaven. And, interestingly enough, some of the Jews won't be. In fact, some of them will end up in hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of darkness and torment. Again, hell is not a very popular topic in today's culture. Um, Jesus, however, talks about hell more than anyone else in Scripture. And the reason is it's a very real place that could be part of your e eternal destiny. And he loves you enough to warn you. May he marvel of your faith and not unbelief. Verse 14, I'm going to try to cover a few more verses here. I told you it would take us a while to get through chapter 8. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laying sick with fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. There's a few interesting details about Peter that are worth pointing out from the text. First, in order to have a mother-in-law, uh, he has to have a wife. Trust me, you, you don't go with a mother-in-law without the wife. No one signs up for that. So he definitely has a wife to have the mother-in-law with the wife. Which is, again, an interesting thing, isn't it? That the first pope wasn't celibate. He was married. He had a wife. And not only did he have a wife, he has a mother-in-law. And according to this text, his mother-in-law was living with him which tells us a few interesting things. Again, we don't know a lot about Peter's family. We don't even know his wife's name. But the implications, again, within society, if the husband passed away, it would be incumbent, the responsibility, culturally, of the oldest son to take care of his mother. So the mom would move in with the, the son, and he would therefore be her provider and her caregiver, the significant male in her life. The fact that we have Peter's wife's mom living with Peter tells us that she didn't have a son. At least that's the implication, that she didn't have a son, because she would therefore be living with him and not Peter, which also then tells me something I think kind of cool about Peter, that Peter was willing to step into a situation 
and care for his family. That he was able to, to knock down a wall, to extend out a grandparent suite. That he was able to care for his elderly family. And it's something that Jesus acknowledges because he, he comes to the home. He sees that she's got a fever, a great fever. He heals her. I, just as a side note, I think for those of us that are younger, we're told to honor our father and mother. I, 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 I'm going to embarrass them, but one of the great examples in my own life as, you know, to, to, to this honoring, you know, Joe. Joe was willing to take in Teresa's mom when she was sick, was able to bring in Jim, Teresa's father, into his home. Even to the point that it required building a, a, a gigantic ramp. And when I say a gigantic ramp, I'm saying a gigantic ramp across the back of his home, pouring a concrete slab around to the driveway for wheelchair access. To see my brother honor, not his father and mother, but the father and mother of his wife. And to take care of them. Take care of them. I think there's something divine about that. I think there's something honoring about that. I think that there's something that, especially within our culture, where there's a place for mom. The place for mom should be with us. They wiped your butt. At some point, you'll have to wipe theirs. And there's something, I think, holy about that. Jesus. He sees her sick with a fever. And we're told that he touched her hand. Oh, the tenderness to that, right? He touched her hand. The fever left her. She arose and served them. You know, we have some interesting contrasts here, don't we? We have the leper coming to Jesus with a petition. We have a centurion coming to Jesus with intervention. He's intervening for someone he loves, trusting that Jesus would know what to do. Again, I should say, and I don't want to be a broken record, but for those of you that maybe have a friend or a family member, a prodigal, your heart is grieved for, heavy over. You don't know what to ask of Jesus, and you come to him, and you present the need. I mean, every night you're explaining to Jesus what's going on. You're pouring your heart out for him. You're intervening, not knowing what to do. Intervention. You know, Jesus will act in someone else's life because of you. Uh, that's what the centurion seems to illustrate. And yet, then we have Peter's mom, don't we? who makes no request, who doesn't come, Jesus comes. Jesus sees the need. Jesus isn't asked by Peter to do anything, isn't asked by Peter's wife or, or the mother-in-law herself. Jesus sees the need and just jumps into the fray and acts, doesn't he? I'm so encouraged by that. That even when we don't even know what our needs are, that Jesus can act accordingly that he can intervene. And then we see the reaction, and it's the reaction of all those who experience Jesus' touch. The fever is gone. 
and she starts to serve. How glorious. Well, we're told, and we'll close with this, that when evening had come, verse 16, and again, Jesus is in Capernaum, a large town. We're told they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. All who were sick. In the Greek, the word all means all. It means every person that was brought to him. According to Mark, we're told that he, he stayed up all night. So many were brought. And then as Matthew does, again referenced earlier, he adds for us some biblical context, some Old Testament prophecy. He says, Jesus did all this that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he, took, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Jesus. You know, you can't help but read through this passage and these examples of, of this, of this mir miraculous part of his ministry. From the leper to the centurion and his servant to Peter's mother-in-law to this example where we're told that he casts out spirits with a word. Jesus' word has power, friends. In fact, it is the same word that we're told in Genesis 1 created all things. All things were told out of nothing. Jesus created the Logos, the Word. Jesus said, let there be light. And there was light. That with a word, Jesus created things that didn't exist beforehand. And it's the same word here. The power demonstrated in his ministry and his love and heart for people. Jesus would speak a word and a servant dreadfully tormented would be healed. He would say, be cleansed and leprosy would leave. He would say a word and tormenting spirits would retreat. A word. Guys, this is why at Calvary 316, we take our time and we study the word. God's word. Why? Because it is the word of God, we're told in Hebrews, that is alive and powerful. <laughs> well, Zach, you don't, you don't know. I'm, I'm missing something in my heart. I so want to do this, but I can't. It's just not there. It's not in me. I no longer have a love for my wife. I no longer have a heart to do this or to do that. It's just not there, Zach. How can you expect something to be there that isn't there? <laughs> well, I know Jesus. And Jesus' word has the power to create something out of nothing. If it's not there, that's okay. Jesus' word can supernaturally speak it into being. The question is, is will you come to the word? The word that became flesh, 
and dwelt among us. Will you come to Jesus? And you don't even have to know what to ask for. And he'll still do it. So Father, Lord, we thank you for this.